Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge you are here. We acknowledge that you are alive. That your word and the story you are telling in it and in our lives is true. And we acknowledge that the story you're telling is real. And that that reality is the kingdom of God breaking in all around us. We take in and breathe out deep breaths today knowing that Uh, Your spirit is among us, that your spirit is the breath in our lungs. We thank you for your grace and your love. Um, Calm my beating heart and uh, give me the words to say today. Open all of our ears and eyes and give us all open hearts and open hands as as we come to you and continue to acknowledge um, all the ways in which you are good to us. We're carrying a lot of stories with us today, some of them true, some of them not true, some of them baggage, uh, some of them light. Um, We don't forget about them or refuse to acknowledge them, but we do lay them at your feet, and we do say that amidst all those things that there's cause to celebrate today, and that there's reason to, uh, to lift our eyes up to the story you're telling. We love you, I thank you for this community, and I thank you for um, the work you are doing and what you're up to. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning, Hope Church. Um, We have been uh, in a series for a while called The Paradigm. Um, It's a series that Russ started uh, in the middle of the summer, somewhere in July. So we've been working through the book of Exodus for a while now, um, and we've been talking about Exodus being the paradigm for kind of the whole meta-narrative of Scripture. Um, We've been talking a lot about looking at uh, Scripture and the story of the Bible as just that, as a story and as a narrative, not just, not not a rule book, not an owner's manual, but it's this grand story that God has been telling for for eons and generations and millennia, and we are part of that same story continuing forward. Um, So we believe that in these writings and ancient texts uh, penned by ancient people and passed down through generations and millennia, uh, therein lies this truth around and this story around which our lives should be oriented and lived. And the one story within this meta-narrative being told through this library of books that we call the Bible, the book of Exodus, which is the first book of the Hebrew Old Testament um, following the prologue of Genesis, We believe that that's a form or paradigm. We've been kind of unwrapping that, and Russ has been doing a beautiful job of of sort of unraveling that narrative um, over the past three to four months now. But we believe that Exodus is sort of a microcosm of the whole whole story, that that kind of gives us a snapshot um, of this grand meta-narrative that's being woven throughout the story of Scripture. So we, and, and we also believe that if there's anything of value in this library of books and, and ancient texts, um, that, that it tells something true about God 
and that it tells us something true about ourselves, that this story that God is telling is a true story. And though it was written by human beings who are flawed and broken, it was written within a specific cultural binding and with certain pre-modern ancient sensibilities and an understanding of cosmology and culture and the world and the divine, that this story reaches beyond that, beyond all of its cultural bindings. It transcends that and it tells us something true. In the same way Jesus does, this story shows us the truest face of God. So there's something about this story and the way it's told, even though, like I said, it's bound by culture and context and history, just like we are in our understanding of the story at this very moment, that it's a true story. And we're not just talking about a true story as in something that is factually and historically accurate. Not that it's not, but we need to go deeper of our, uh, we need to go into a deeper understanding of truth than just that kind of sur surface level factual understanding of what truth is. We'll come back to that a little later. But we've been in this series and in this book for about three or four months now. So maybe now is a good time to kind of stay, take a step back and uh, kind of review where, we, where we're at in the story and what's happened up until this point to catch us up to uh, current day. Current day, thousands of years ago. <laughs> um, so we have a nation enslaved, right? Nation enslaved and oppressed and occupied. For the better part of half a century, Israel is in Egypt. We have a king, a cruel king, who is enforcing infanticide on all the baby boys to ensure that this oppressed people will not rise up against him and get too powerful and create some sort of mutiny or takeover. However, little does this king know that the restructuring of his kingdom won't come at the hands of some conquering hero or some overtake and mutiny. It's going to come at the hands of a helpless little baby boy. Does that sound familiar? And that this helpless baby boy found in a basket born onto the waters to safety, or rather the Nile River, which is the cause of death for all these baby boys and this, um, this horrible killing off of all these children, uh, that's going to be the one highway of safety for this one baby boy that'll be, that'll be delivered through the waters. Um, this boy's name is Moses. He's taken from the water by, by uh, an Egyptian princess. Um, given the name Moses, being, meaning to be drawn out. He's raised in the house of the very king who tried to kill him. And, uh, and then we jump way forward in the story. We, we jump decades forward to when Moses is a man, and we're told the story of um, Moses witnessing an Egyptian uh, beating an Israelite slave, and Moses kills the Egyptian. We don't know the situation. We don't know if it's self-defense or an accident or the rage and heat of the moment. All we know is he kills this guy, he's found out, and he takes off into the desert. He goes into hiding, he flees. So there's this bit, there, there are these big kind of jumps in the, in the narrative, and we find that all throughout Scripture. There's long periods of, of silence or that's just not given to us, not recorded. But he flees off into the desert. He ends up taking a wife and having children with her um, and just basically chills out as a shepherd for a really long time in the desert. Life passes by, the clock turns over in the silence and the ferocious barrenness of the wilderness which is usually when we find some significant things happening in this narrative. And then we have sort of the inciting incident, possibly, of the story up until this point. Moses stumbled, stumbles upon something kind of crazy. It's a, it's a shrub that's on fire, but it doesn't burn up. And we're told that the voice of God is coming out of this shrub. And the voice of God tells Moses that he, he's heard the cries of his people in their oppression, and he's going to do something about it. 
And then he looks at Moses and says, you're what, I'm going to do something about it. And then the God shrub and Moses kind of have it out for a while. And Moses asks a lot of questions like, who am I and who are you? And basically gets to the point where he just says, I don't want to do this. Is there anyone else you can send? And God, uh, like the good father that he is, um, he gets ticked for a second, but he comes down and he, he, he compromises and he sort of deigns to go along with, with Moses' idea and he provides a helper for him. And he sends a companion, Aaron, with him to go back to Egypt to set his people free. And then we have the whole business of Moses going back to Pharaoh and with that famous line, let my people go, over and over again, which Pharaoh doesn't over and over again. And God uses Moses to afflict Egypt with a lot of plagues that have kind of this, uh, this dark sardonic sense of memory and history to them. Uh, which sort of uh, crescendo in intensity, culminating with the death of the firstborn in every Egyptian household. And this is apparently the straw that breaks Pharaoh's back and he tells Israel to get out of there and go worship God in the desert like they've been begging to do and make sacrifices to him. So Israel picks up and leaves and Pharaoh, in true character, changes his mind and sends all his armies after Israel, which end up getting, you know the story, drowned in the Red Sea after Israel passes through on dry ground. If you don't know the story, I think Prince of Egypt is still on Netflix. Um, do, they, do they still show the Ten Commandments on TV every year? I used to watch that growing up. Charlton Heston was like the man when I was, it was like Charlton Heston, Indiana Jones, Han Solo. If only Harrison Ford had played Moses, that would have been like the trifecta of my childhood <laughs> heroes. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Israel's free at this point and they're in the, they're in the desert and it does not take them long to forget at all. They forget and fast about God, about this thing that they're being brought out of and called into. And they start complaining. They start blaming Moses. They start wishing to trade certainty and safety of captivity for freedom and possibility in the desert. And God, again, the good father that he is, chooses grace and provision instead of anger and retaliation, and he hears them, and he provides for them. He sends bread that appears on the ground. He sends quail for meat. He makes water come out of rocks, and he sweetens bitter water by asking Moses to throw sticks into it. Crazy stuff happens in the desert. I don't know. There's something about the desert. But God ends up meeting Moses on this mountain and giving him 10 seemingly simple commandments and instructions, um, and then follows that with about three and a half chapters of sort of detailed breakdown and legalese of what, what will happen when these laws are broken, which I think tells us something about God as well. And then after that, we've got uh, about seven long chapters of excruciating detail on how the tabernacle is uh, supposed to be built, and Russ kind of started to go into that last week. So we have these detailed blueprints and instructions, and then God handpicks a few people out of a few tribes and says, these guys are creative, they're the artisans, have them do all this stuff. And this is where we pick up the story today. We're caught up to Exodus 31, which reads as follows. So Exodus 31, uh, verses 1 through 11 here. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahissamech, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. 
the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, the basin with its stand. I said excruciating detail, right? And also with woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. And the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. So this is what we're going to be talking about today. What does this very brief and maybe seemingly insignificant passage and section tell us of the story? Tell us about God and what does it tell us about our place in the story? Well, the first thing I see in looking at this passage is that God works with what he has. Exodus 31 doesn't give us a lot of detail about these two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab. We've got their names, we've got their tribes, we've got a few ancestors. We're not told really who they are. We're not told much about their character or their spiritual aptitude or personal piety or anything like that. They clearly weren't priests or holy men being commissioned to do this work. They were craftsmen. They were artists. Most likely in Egypt, they were bricklayers, builders, common laborers. Maybe they had creative hobbies and tinkerings on the side and designs on doing bigger things. Maybe not. But either way, they're being called into a much bigger story than what they experienced back in Egypt. Part of the fun, I think, of reading scripture is employing our imaginations in some of those, in some of those silent times during those periods of scores or hundreds of years where we're not told anything about the story. So we're left with no choice but to ask a lot of what-ifs, right? So I read this passage and I like to think that these guys are just average Joes who aren't maybe the handsomest or strongest or buffest or even smartest of their tribes. But maybe, and maybe not like construction foreman types. Maybe these two are like the skinny, nerdy, artsy outcasts of their tribes. And the guys who when God picks them, everyone looks around and they're like, but not the Bezalel I know. The guy who sits in the guitar or sits in the corner playing his guitar? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe these two guys weren't the first ones that the tribe thought of to appoint as the master craftsmen and artisans. The guys who back in Egypt, um, yeah, they, 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 did, they did other stuff. They, they were manual labors. The, their craftsmanship was most likely, like I said, in, in bricklaying and, and common things. And then God picks them out, draws them out and says, I'm going to give you wisdom and understanding and knowledge and my very spirit to accomplish some pretty profound and amazing tasks. I like to think they had the raw talent, but you know, maybe they weren't the first to get picked for the tribe of Judah kickball team. Not those guys. Certainly weren't going to win a beauty pageant. That seems like God's style. Why else would they need to be filled with knowledge, wisdom, and God's spirit? These were just average dudes with the goods to deliver, and the talent inside who were being called out to do something beyond what they normally would be able to do. I love what Madeline Lingle says about this in her book, Walking on Water, along these lines. She says, God is no respecter of persons. And this is something we're reluctant to face. It's hard for us to understand that he lavishly gives enormous talents to people we would consider unworthy. That he chooses his artists with as calm a disregard of surface moral qualifications as he chooses his saints. God works with what he has. 
He takes average laborers with a propensity for creativity and raw talent, and he gives them blueprints and blesses them and trusts them as artists to just create. It's like God saying, here, here's a pen and good penmanship and a great flair for good storytelling. Help me write this story. The second thing I see is that God gives us what we need. God supplies those whom he gifts. Or as I've heard David Santos to say, God pays for what he orders. <laughs> we have some great contrast here between these two leaders that are presiding over Israel. The, the leader in the old story, Pharaoh, and God, the king of the new story. Pharaoh, who was a taskmaster and a slave driver, and a God who supplies and gifts and fills and then send out, sends out to make stuff. Pharaoh takes away straw and says, produce the same amount as before. Keep up the quota. Whereas God kindly disposes his enemies, as it says in the scripture, to shower his people with treasure and then calls them by name, possibly the socially awkward dweeby types of the tribe, who already have gifts and talents and then piles on knowledge and wisdom in his spirit and says, here's the raw materials, here's the talent, and here's the full blueprints. Just have fun. The economy of the old story is about production. The economy in the new story is all about creation. Israel has been called out of captivity to write a new story with God. God gives them all that they need at the very moment they need it. And then says, now go make stuff. The third point is uh, that we're moving into a new story. We have this trajectory throughout scripture and again sort of paradigmed in the book of Exodus of moving from the old into the new, being called out into something greater. This is a kingdom where bricklayers and mud trompers become master artisans and co-creators. This is a kingdom where people are given gifts and then given the opportunities to use them in some grand and preposterous ways like building a tabernacle to God in the desert. This is a kingdom where calling has nothing to do with production and everything to do with creation. In the old story, you'll notice Israel has had everything they needed because they knew exactly where it was coming from. They were enslaved and they were dealt with cruelly, but they had certainty. They knew where their next meal was coming from, but they didn't have freedom. They had assurance, but not kindness. They had food, but no feasts, no parties to have with it. In the new story, we see they have only what they need today. The manna spoils the next day. They're only told to keep what they have for today. And they don't know where tomorrow's dinner is going to come from. But they're free. It's like this trade-off. Certainty is replaced with trust. Assurance with faith. We have a whole value shift here. A guarantee of a contractual exchange for food with a relationship of trust and provision and sacrifice. A tyrant is dethroned and a father takes that place. And you notice how the new story, it doesn't eliminate risk or uncertainty, not at all. In fact, I think there's way more risk and danger and uncertainty in this new story that Israel's being called into. It doesn't eliminate risk, it pushes into it and it leans into that tension where they don't know what's going on and they don't know where they're going and they don't know what they're being called into. All they're being told to do is to say yes to what's right in front of them. 
to gather the manna today and leave the rest because it's going to spoil by tomorrow. Because they're writing the story with God. A story, anybody who knows something about story structure know, or, or has, is an appreciator of good stories knows that a story without risk, without peril, without the possibility of colossal failure, it's not a great story. It's not, or at least not that we want, one that we want to read or watch. I think that this story is the paradigm because it's moving from a place of certainty to uncertainty. With big risk and danger and a lot at stake. And the possibility for failure and rebellion and maybe even death. There's no guarantees. This story is the paradigm because it's like, it's like the maturation process of life. It kind of follows the life cycle too. It's like we move from the safety and certainty and... Uh, relative comfort of childhood, but with limited freedom and understanding, right? Into a land of untold freedom and endless possibilities, but with a lot more at stake and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of ambiguity and a lot of gray. Unstable terrain. <laughs> if we want to live as part of the new story, perhaps we need to embrace that uncertainty and trust, as hard as that may be. I don't know how that works, but something about it feels true and feels right. Instead of trying to eliminate it or mitigate it. And uncertainty can be absolutely terrifying, but if we know, and there's no guarantees, but if we know that, there's, that there is a good father around us, that changes the game. When there is a relationship of trust, rather than a contractual exchange for food with service, like they had in, in, uh, in Egypt, it changes the game. There's at least some sense of security there. There's hope. And I think hope is way more powerful than a contract. Maybe we'll get the capacity to live a better story if we learn to live in the tension of uncertainty. Or as another key character down the road in this story says, give us this day our daily bread. And don't worry about tomorrow tomorrow has enough worries of its own and it'll take care of itself. The last thing I want to say uh, about this, this passage that we read today and this story um, in, a, in a larger sense as being the paradigm is the story we're moving into from the old story to the new story, it's a true story. And we're part of the same story. It's amazing sitting here singing as a community today and picturing communities of faith 30 years ago and 50 years ago and 100 years ago and 500 years ago in medieval cathedrals and, and further back, all the way back to the tabernacle, uh, raising our voices to this same God. We're part of this story and we're a continuation of this story. This is a story, you guys, that moves forward, not backward. And that tells us something big about God too. It's a story that's constantly progressing and growing and new. God is a God who moves and looks forward. Or further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis says. God's not a God of some golden age in the past that we need to find and get back to and crawl back to. He's out there. He's in front of us, working and telling the story and beckoning us forward into his kingdom and saying, come on, I got you. And that's the security we have. 
God is a God who is working and progressing and beckoning us forward. One of the most compelling things about this story we have in this library of books we call the Bible isn't necessarily that it's perfect or infallible. Not that it's not, but that it's true. And not true in the sense of being factually accurate or correct and not that it's not. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But that it's true in a far deeper sense than our kind of shallow Western equivocation of fact with truth. True in a way that when you hear a beautiful piece of music, Steph and I saw the New York Philharmonic in Prospect Park this last summer. And to hear that kind of orchestral music um, on a beautiful warm summer night in the outdoors with like 10,000 other people, and at the end of a piece where the last harmonious chord rings out and then is closed off into silence, you just can't help but take this deep breath and feel that everything is okay in some sense. True like that. True like that. Like the story Russ told last week about, um, about Timothy and this group of kids, and Timothy was, Timothy wronged this kid, and he was so afraid to ask for forgiveness, and it came out because he was, he was afraid that the other kid would say no. And the other kid says, ask, I will, I will. And all the kids start chanting, ask, ask, ask for forgiveness. And I hear that story and I get giddy about it because something feels right. Something feels true about that. Something rings, my spirit says yes to that. It's true like hearing a story like that and saying yes. It has the ring of truth. It's like going through a day hearing only treble and then you're dropped with this resounding bass note. Truth is a resonating bass note in a world full of treble. Truth is a resounding yes in our spirit. This story is true. I hear this story and I say, my spirit says yes to it. But it's our choice whether we say yes to that truth. That truth says yes to us and whether we say yes back and agree with it, it's fully our decision whether we say yes to God and the story that he is telling and to jump into that river. And choice is a huge part of story as well. Choice is sometimes a character's only real power in a story. Our choices are significant and scary powerful. Madeline Lingle says something about this in Walking on Water too. She says, all of life is story. Story unraveling and revealing meaning. Despite our inability to control circumstances, we're given the gift of being free to respond to them in our own way. Creatively or destructively, what our free will is meant to do is to help God write the story. The story that God is telling in Scripture is true. I believe that. It's like a resounding bass note in a world full of treble. Will we say yes to it? I love how Jesus in John's Gospel says, I am the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's where this story is all heading toward. It's all heading toward Jesus. It's all heading toward Jesus and the kingdom of God that he talked about is near, it's close, it's all around us. We can smell it, it's so close. It's breaking into our reality. What is true and the truth for the Christian is not a logical and philosophical assent to a list of facts or tenets. It means saying yes to a person. Jesus says, I am the truth. 
not this list of things, me. Truth is a person for us as believers. Truth is a story. It's the true story that God is telling about the kingdom of God and the true reality. Okay, I'd like to invite the music team back up at this point. Um, and this is how this is a true story. Because it's a paradigm for life and for everything that is real. Which is the kingdom of God working ahead of us and breaking in all around us. That's the true reality. And I think there's something deep in all of us that wants to say yes to that. So here's what we learn from this tiny section of the story that we are calling the paradigm in Exodus. That God works with what he has. And that's us. Just like he did with Bezalel and Aholiab, working with what was in front of him. God gives us what we need when we need it, and that's his spirit. Just like he did with his artisans and gave them wisdom and knowledge. That we're moving into a new story, as the Israelites were. And that the story we're moving into is a true story. And we can rest in that. And be carried by that. That if it's a true story, if it rings true and resonates with our spirits, then God is to be found there. I've heard it said that all truth is God's truth. That where there is truth... That's where God lives. And if this collection of stories is true, and this one in Exodus being the paradigm, the sort of the overarching narrative of scripture, then all the things that make this a good story, and stories in general, good and compelling stories, I believe are the same things that make life rich and full of meaning and value and beauty and risk and uncertainty and danger and choice. It's all part of that new story that we're being called into. There's something about this story that's profoundly, deeply true. And that makes it worthy of our attention, our focus, and this God worthy of our worship if we want to live lives that are true stories as well. One way we affirm the truth of this story uh, is something that and so, as something that resonates with us is uh, by practicing coming to the table and remembering. There's this, there's this great uh, kind of relationship between God being progressing and moving forward and calling us forward into what he's doing and him also saying to look back and remember where you've come from and what I've done and where I'm bringing you. Come, come forward with me, but remember. All throughout this story, God is very aware of how forgetful his people are, and in his mercy, he's constantly reminding them to remember. It's like the whole kind of pillars of Judaism is, is about these feasts and these festivals and remembering, setting up these pillars of remembrance. It's like God saying, don't forget that I'm good, and don't forget that I'm full of grace, and don't forget that I'm not angry with you, but I love you. He's calling them forward. So we come to this table and we remember that the truest picture we have of God looks like Jesus. And the truest picture of God's face we have is exhibited in this story. And the good news in this whole story is that we don't have to change our clothes to come to God. He did that already. He changed his clothes and came to us. He walked among us and he showed us a life 
reconciled to God unto death, unto a horrible death, that Jesus lived the truest story with his life and that he lives with us and in us still. Man, that's good news. So we share this bread and this juice together as a way to say yes to Jesus and to the kingdom of God and to remember his life, his death, and his resurrection. To remember that the story of Jesus is a true story. Have I said true and story enough today? (laughs) And it's something to say yes to. That God is beckoning us forward by reminding us to remember here today as a community. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.